Good morning. My name is Kira, and I'll be reading the text this morning. Please feel free to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28, or you can follow along in the YouVersion app or by simply looking up on the screens. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used to wor in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, but then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away by sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, the bear, once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. shabby she read like half a chapter <laughs> oh it's creepy cough too good morning everybody and uh as uh, as already has been mentioned we're in the middle of a series called for the better and this morning uh the message is entitled better sacrifice better sacrifice and uh as i was thinking about uh this morning and thinking about some of the different things that i've experienced throughout my life i realized that um, maybe in the moment they were absolutely asinine and absurd, but maybe, just maybe, God was allowing me to live this life so I could use them as sermon illustrations <laughs> later on. And uh, you can take that up with my mother because she would just disagree and call it disobedience. But uh, in either case, there's some ridiculous uh, things that I have actually uh, done, believe it or not, as you probably know if you've been here any amount of time. And uh, one of the things that... Um, that I started uh, to kind of do growing up is um, I would start things around my house. Uh, I think, I don't know if it was really 
that I had this innate desire, like a thrill seeker, I guess they call him now or something, or maybe an adrenaline junkie, or I don't know. I just kind of think it was more inquisitive. Like I was just curious, like, are these things possible? And then I would be like, well, there's only one way to tell. I should try them. And so uh, like we had uh, a garage that we turned into an apartment next to our home. And so we had people living in there and uh, I thought one time, I wonder if I could just jump off that roof. Like, would that be okay? Would I survive? Would that be all right? And the more I got up on the roof and looked at it, I thought, I, that's not that far. I can definitely jump off of this roof, and it would be even better if I waited until a family member was walking by so I could scare them to death. Um, there were also moments where I knew that, you know, cats always land on their feet. And so then I just thought, well, how high does that rule go? Like, well, they literally always fall on their feet, and would my neighbor believe that it's raining cats and dogs if I was on that roof and threw a cat at them? And they did. Um, and they landed on their feet. Anyway, not a good idea. Don't recommend it. Things like that. And I got in trouble for those things, and every time my mom was like, what, what, what were you thinking? Like, why would you jump off a roof? Like, why would you throw an animal off a roof at a person? And I was like, well, raining cats and dogs. Like, you have to see the humor in that. She laughed a little bit, but quickly caught herself. And uh, <coughs> then there was the moment I was on my roof, and I believed that I could make it into a pool. And there was a deck that was about uh, 20 feet that I had to clear. And so I thought, I think I can run off this roof fast enough and jump over the entire deck and make it into our four-foot pool. And, uh, and my mom was clearly communicating to me not to do it because she was present. And she said, do not do it. What are you doing on the roof? I'm like, mom, I think I'm pretty sure I can make it. And she said, I'm going to communicate this this way. If you jump, I'm not driving you to the hospital. I thought, I won't need a trip to the hospital. <laughs> and, and I didn't. Um, until my dad found out that I literally did that when my mom told me to stop. And then maybe <laughs> I might have needed a hospital. But the, uh, the, the fact is, there were a lot of things that I did, and my mom would be like, stop, as she started to witness them. Stop doing that. And then I would do them. And we talked about this, and she would, she would say, why in the world would you just openly disobey me? Like in the moment, she goes, normally when I say something to you, like you listen. When I say it, you listen, but there are these moments that you do these things, and, and they're so absurd. And I was like, Mom, I think I just, I get caught up in the moment when there's other people there. Like, they're egging me on. They're excited. I see the excitement on their face, and I just know I can do it. I know I can get going fast enough, jump off my roof, clear 20 feet of deck, and land in a four-foot pool, kind of in an angle, and everybody will cheer. Like, why would I not do that? She's like, because I told you not to, son. I'm like, that's valid. It's pretty valid. And so I said, well, I think the thing is, if I get wrapped up in the moment, if maybe you could just like have a cue or something to tell me, like to kind of like make me aware that the moment, that it, the moment is getting bigger than I am. And she's like, like what? I'm like, like maybe if you just said, this is the last time I'm telling you. Like if you just said, this is the last time I'm telling you, like I feel like it would be like almost cold water on me. And she's like, okay, I'll try that. And so a series of things happen. And she would say, this is the last time I'm telling you. And I'd be like, Oh, man. And there were, there were some awesome, epic things that the world missed out on because of that statement. And so, you know, I, I climbed down from the tractor trailer and, no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but like all the different things that I can think of that she's like, no, this is it. And come down. And then all of a sudden I started to realize 
that what that really meant was this is the last chance. So like do whatever you want up until I say that. And then once I say that, you need to stop. So I started to like push the boundaries and start doing things until I heard that statement. And so it really kind of all culminated and came to a point when my sister was in, uh, in her Jeep and I had a rope uh, attached to me um, and, and I was on skis and I was thinking, I can jump that dirt pile in my yard even though there's no snow. And so uh, she comes out and she goes, Claude, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm going to ride that, <laughs> these skis and jump the dirt pile. She's like, no, you're not. And I was like, yes, I am. She goes, this is the last time I'm telling you. I'm like, go. And so she went and, yeah, it was, we don't have to hear the end of that. It wasn't pretty. But in either case, skis don't move quite as quickly as you think on gravel. And it was fun. So in either case, she pulls me aside. She goes, I'm done doing this. And I was like, what? She's like, I'm done giving you the last chance. And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, because you're manipulating. She goes, you're literally pushing it to the edge. And then when you hear that I'm literally giving you a last chance, then you stop. I'm done. You need to listen the first time. You have to obey me the first time. It's like, bummer. Bummer. <laughs> So the question I have for you this morning as we move into the text is, why are second chances so appealing to us? Why are second chances so appealing? Like, if I could just have a, a second chance, if only I could do it one more time, if you could just give me a second chance to obey you, if you could just give me a, a second chance to attempt this, if I just had a second chance every time I was going to putt, man, I'd be a great putter, right? Why are second chances so appealing to us? I think at base value, the answer to the question is rather obvious, right? We don't want to think that our current reality is as good as it gets. If we had a second chance at it, it would be better. If we had a second chance at the first day of school, if we had a second chance at um, you name it, we would do things better. The idea of a second chance carries the possibility of a better outcome, right? It's just kind of inherent. It's sort of obvious. Especially with the statement that we hear so often and maybe we even say, what we know now. Man, with what we know now, imagine how things would be different. If only I knew. Our past provides so many lessons, right? Whether it's the break you didn't see when you putted the first time or, um, you know, the fact that maybe snow is required for skis. Things like that. Um, we, we really like the idea of being able to repeat something in hopes that we do a better thing the second time. There's things that we say, on one, on one end we say, you know what, uh, if I had to do over again, I would do it exactly the way I just did it. Have you ever had a moment that you've just done so right, that you're like, if I had to do over, I'd do it the same way. But then there's also the other side of that coin. You know what, if I had to do over again, I would avoid this at all costs. I know now what the outcome is, and hindsight's 2020, and we're in year 2020. <laughs> and if I was an idiot, I'd try to weave that into my message, but I'm not. So anyway, moving on, we would say that uh, <laughs> this is going to be fun. All right, so our, uh, our past, you know, it provides us perspective, right? 
heard it so many times, like I said before, if I knew what I knew then, what I know now, or if I could just go back. If I could just go back, the things I'd do differently. It's why Back to the Future was such a famous movie in its time. I mean, the idea kind of resonates with all of us, right? Christian or not. It's not about being a Christian. It's not even being about a Christ follower. It's about being a human and just wanting a second chance at certain things, a do-over. If I could just have another opportunity, this, this idea maybe carries regret with it. Maybe a desire for a second chance in general just resonates, but it really resonates only at face value. But I want to tell you this morning and submit to you that I think there's a deeper level. There's something more profound that happens when we desire a second chance. The reality that we don't like to necessarily talk about is that the only reason we want to change something is because at some point we made a decision, we made a choice, now we're on the other side of it. You see, wanting a second chance means we don't like our first one. The desire for a second chance means we wish that we hadn't decided what we decided. The whole concept of a second chance is really revealing, isn't it? It kind of bears our soul. It shows a little bit of discontent and uneasiness and unsettledness, the idea that maybe we're just not quite able to trust ourselves in every situation. Because if you want a second chance, it means you're not always right. You don't always get it right. So now in the the moment that you desire a second chance, we're faced with another choice. In light of the fact that we're discontent with our first decision or our first choice or our first chance, whatever that might be, we're now confronted with the consequences of living with our poor decisions. And as we come into life and into the days that follow the decisions that we've made, it could mean that we've decided to just be victimized by our poor choices. That daily we're filled with regret. I'm amazed at the number of people that kind of mask that regret until there's a moment that that opens it up like a flood. The reality that they've been carrying around regret with a decision that they've made or a poor choice that they've made and they've just come to grips with the fact that in some way they just have to be victimized by it daily, that in some way it's a form of penance, that the pain feels almost cathartic, that we've gotten to a place where it's like, I deserve the pain of the choices I've made and so I just, I settle into it. I wish I had a second chance, but I can't, so I'm just gonna suffer through the one that I made. The reality is we have another option. We can learn to choose. We can learn that we can, we can choose to learn from the decisions we've made. We can choose to learn from them and even allow God to redeem them. Now that's interesting because some people are almost offended by the idea that God can redeem a poor choice. It's like, almost that it carries with it that somehow God inflicted the pain. But that's not the case, right? We live in a a sin-filled world where people make sin-filled decisions, where people make poor choices, and as a result, sometimes we're victimized by those choices. Sometimes we're the originator. 
Our own depravity is the originator of the poor choices. And so as those decisions are made, we can either be victimized by them or we can choose to say, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, in the midst of these, God is redeeming. God can do something with even my brokenness. Because here's the harsh reality. The harsh reality is that you don't get a second chance at your one and only life. This is your life. This is it. And listen, I'm not saying that that means that we should live haphazardly. Because some people say, well, you know what? If the decisions I made and this is it, then you know what? Who really cares? I'm broken, and so I'm just going to do whatever it is that I want. I'm not saying to live haphazardly at all. I'm saying sometimes we make poor choices and even sinful decisions. And I know I'm using this, this word and this concept of sinful decisions, and it's very churchy, right? Sinful decisions. Like, what does that even mean? What does it mean to, to make decisions that are sin-filled? And what it really means is that in those decisions, we're elevating self, we're elevating others, we're elevating any created thing above the creator. That's sin. To say that thing, that person, myself, has greater authority and worth than the one that is worthy of all praise and all glory. So the decisions that we make that are more motivated by self or others or possessions or whatever it might look like is really those sinful moments. Those decisions have very real consequences. And the sad reality is we like to deny that fact when it comes to our spiritual journeys. I'll kind of explain it a little bit because if we deny the reality of spiritual implications we're either held captive by the past or we cheapen grace. If we don't connect the dots of consequences to our spiritual journey, we become victimized by our past decisions or we cheapen grace. And cheapen grace looks a lot like, God's going to forgive me. Hey, God, here's the deal. When I feel really convicted, then I'll stop. (laughs) When you just say this is the last chance, then I'll try to wrap it up. I'm going to make a decision just because it feels good in the moment, because everybody was doing it, because I got talked into it, because I got carried away in the moment. Listen, everyone was cheering like I obviously should have participated. It's interesting how we don't like to connect the idea of consequences to our spiritual journey. If there was a fire, the consequences to that fire is you get burned, right? We know that. At a very early age, we tell our kids, and I've, I've given this illustration before about the idea, we'll, we'll just scream to our kids, hot, hot, hot. And then when the kid's like, eh, be like, well, you got burned. <laughs> you need to listen because there's consequences to fire. And we don't say, oh, evil fire burned me again. Why is fire so unfair? I'm living my life. And it's like fire just wants to burn me at every turn. It's asinine, right? Like who would try to blame fire, right? It's an obvious natural consequence. Gravity, gravity, you're going to fall. You go near the edge of something, you're falling. You jump off a house, you're going down, right? If you have an expectation to fly, you have been sadly mistaken, It's a consequence of gravity. Nobody sits there and shakes their fist at gravity. How dare you, gravity? 
every time. I trip and fall, and it's just because life is so unfair. But we make sinful decisions. We don't want the consequences. How dare you, God? Seriously? How unfair are you? Where are you now, God? It's asinine, right? Unless, unless we're just not connecting the dots. That there's consequences to our spiritual journey the same way that there's consequences to the physical life that we live. They're connected. We can't separate them. We just don't consider the ramifications. Maybe we do sometimes with others. Not always, though. I had a friend that was cutting something recently, and they were about to accidentally cut an electrical wire that was live. And I screamed, no, 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 stop, stop. It was like almost embarrassing how passionate I was. Stop! (laughs) Why do I make that noise? I hate that. I'll listen to my podcast to make sure that I'm not like terrible at this, and I hear me go, all the time, and I want so bad to stop it. So I just like to publicly apologize to anyone listening by podcast or videocast. I have no idea why I go, but I do. Anyway, sorry. Again, another squirrel moment. If I don't acknowledge it, then maybe I have adult onset ADD, or maybe I've been born with it and in denial my whole life. In either case, wow. I just screamed in that moment. Why? Because I didn't want something to be damaged and I didn't want them to be electrocuted. And so the, the consequences of that moment just caused me to respond. But how many times have I watched people that I love about to make sinful decisions that are amazingly, amazingly devastating and I sit silently? How many times have I carefully, with intention and love and patience, sit with my kids and explain with the clarity that I explained hot to them, that I explained the implications and consequences of sinful decisions. It's weird, right? Because the reality in this physical world, the worst that can happen is that our bodies are hurt or damaged or that we somehow shorten the 120 years that we have on this life. But the eternal implications of forever and ever and ever, we sit silently by sometimes. Why is that? Because the reality is the decisions that we make have significant spiritual implications. They fracture our own emotions. They impact our bodies physically, not to mention the spiritual implications. I want to submit to you it's because we like to think that we're the God of our own lives. That at the end of the day, I got this. I can figure it out. I know what to do. I mean, after all, I'm an adult. I'm a young adult. I'm a teenager. I'm not an idiot. I can fix it. If it goes wrong, I'll figure it out. And we become enslaved to sin. Literally. We become enslaved to sin. And sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. We see we can live our lives the way that we want or we can 
choose God's way for the better. What's interesting is that when we live life the way we want, we often end up in a place where we can't figure out why things are turning out poorly. Newsflash. You make a pretty poor God. So you shouldn't be shocked when you kind of fall short in the God role of your own life. I'm saying it to myself as much as I'm saying it to you. We can live our lives our way or we can choose God's way for the better. This is nothing new. In fact, the the Hebrew Christians were right in the same tension of having an old covenant that allowed them to process and to pursue second chances through animal sacrifice. It was the nature of the old covenant. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, we've talked quite a bit about that. And we see here in verse 11, it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. The first word, but, is pretty significant because we see the author kind of turning here. Turning from verses 1 through 10. And 1 through 10 discusses, as we talked about last week, it discusses the limited effectiveness and the insufficiency of the ceremonial laws. That ultimately, they couldn't provide the atonement necessary. But the reality is, there's a better sacrifice. There's a better sacrifice. And so if we move on to verse 12, it goes on and says, He entered once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This word, eternal redemption, this word redemption is actually pretty significant. When we think of redemption, we probably think in terms of maybe can redemption or something where you get five cents back or whatever that looks like. But this word redemption here in the original Greek is actually a word only used in reference to the slave market. And so in this context, in this culture at this time, to use this word redemption would cause a emotion to resonate, an awareness potentially. You see, because what the author is actually saying in this powerful reference is that we have the ability to be free from slavery. It means the release and liberation of the captive. And so literally, because of that which Christ has done, we can go from slave to free. That would be a new concept to the people first reading this, the idea that in some way they've functioned in slavery. Their knee-jerk reaction would kind of be like, but we're all free. You know, growing up, um, I would go and visit friends, and there were some places on the outskirts of the community that I was raised in where it was a little bit rural. And I say a little bit because it it was still kind of a suburb, but it was a little bit more rural than typical. And my one friend had, um, had chickens in his yard, which was like a totally new concept to me. And I went over to his house, and we got to hold these little chicks, and they were just poo monsters, like crazy. If you've ever held a chick, don't. They will go everywhere. And, uh, and so uh, it was just kind of cool. They, they were so cute and everything. And we're in this backyard, and they're in this little, like, joke of a fence. 
um, like almost like a garden fence. I don't know how else to explain it, this little metal tiny fence. And uh, they're in about four feet by four feet, and all these chicks, and there were a lot of them. And I was like, so do you just, you just raise the chicks right here, like in this little square pen? <laughs> and uh, the, their, his mother came out, and I don't know if this is the way all people that own chicks do it, but uh, this is what they do. And so she said, well, what we do is we keep them in there until, I think, I can't remember how many months, but basically we keep them in there and t- so that they realize that they can't go outside of this little fence. And at a certain time, when they're old enough, we remove the, front, the fence and, get this, she said, then they think they're free. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, well, with the fence that we have in the yard, if we left that fence up, the chickens as adults would attempt to get out of the chi- out of the, the fence. And we live close to a road. They would get hit by a car and stuff. She said, so what we do is we create an illusion that they're free by constraining them when they're young. It's an interesting concept. Because I want to submit to you this morning that we function under the illusion of freedom. That in some way we've been lulled in and out of our day to day And we're unaware of the slavery we function in to the sin of our lives. That we just think we're free. Like these older chickens that were outside of this fence just running around thinking they're completely free and yet they're entirely confined as much as they were at birth. Enslavement sometimes requires an illusion of freedom. It's a harsh reality, especially when you start to consider the decisions that you make because you're your own person. I can do what I want. I'm an adult. I'm an adult. Functioning in slavery to the compulsions of my flesh. Different perspective, right? Verses 14, as we move on, says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Purify our conscience. In the pericope prior, the text actually talks about this tension of the old covenant dealing with our conscience in a way that doesn't ultimately bring freedom. And right here, it's saying that through the old covenant, Although they could never ultimately be free, they could never be certain of the forgiveness of their sins. Can you imagine that? Bringing an animal sacrifice and saying, I hope that's enough. I hope that in some way I don't suffer the wrath of God against the sin of my life. Instead, this, this text is saying from dead works to serve the living God. I love this. What I love about it is what you might not notice just reading at it. Get this. Instead of religious activity, dead works. Instead of going through the motions. Instead of being like, oh, shucks, I attend church. I'm a good person. Check, check, check. Not the good work stuff. Instead of going through the motions, we can actually serve a living God. There's a difference. There's a difference between saying, listen, I'm a religious person. I'm a Christian. I'm whatever it is that we want to say to make ourselves feel better. The dead works versus actually serving 
a living God. Why? What is the difference? The difference is this. We can have a clear conscience because of the better sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are forgiven. That Jesus ultimately, when he went to the cross and died for your sins and mine, that he paid the ultimate price for our brokenness, for our poor choices, for our terrible decisions, for us elevating ourselves to the Lord of our own lives. Jesus paid that price and that in a moment we could be forgiven. And that is true freedom. And the true freedom should compel us to serve him. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about this idea of a bondservant, that we're bondservants of Christ. It's an interesting, if you, if you read the Apostle Paul's letters in the context of, of looking at, Hebrew and you, at Hebrews and you kind of look at, at the narrative, the meta-narrative of the gospel throughout scripture, you start to realize that we're actually exchanging slavery to sin to become a bondservant of God. And a bondservant means a willing slave. That in those days, if you, had, if you had the opportunity for freedom, you could then choose to say, I would actually like to remain your slave. You're such a good master. I want to remain in your home. And they would actually pierce them through their nose or through their ear, and they would become a bondservant of Christ. I mean, a bondservant of their master. And so what Paul is talking about is this idea that we can become bondservants of Christ, that we can go from slavery to sin to slavery in Christ, being free. Interesting concept. Interesting implications. Powerful statements being made. Because if we can understand that we can ultimately have freedom in Christ, that we don't have to be a slave to sin, that it should compel us. Listen, it it means that Jesus is the answer to the guilt you feel. That Jesus is the answer to your loneliness. Jesus is the answer to everything. And in your moments of brokenness, to the things that you're searching that, that will never be found on this plane, that you look to your spouse or that you look to your friends or you look to your teacher or you look to whatever it might be in whatever context, can only be found in Christ. If we move on through verses 15 through 16, it says, therefore, so on this platform, therefore, because of everything we just said, therefore, he, meaning Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, God's sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice actually provides freedom for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. This word will is actually also the interchangeable word for covenant. And so the idea of a will being written the, the idea of a covenant being established, that as a death takes place, the will comes into effect. It's kind of a play and a covenant. It talks about Jesus being a mediator of a new covenant. When we think of mediator, we often think of a compromise, somebody that mediates and compromises a situation, but that's not the case here. He mediates on behalf of us because he has paid the price. So he has the authority to say, I died for that sin. I died for them. 
So as we cry out in our brokenness or in our moments where we come to the ends of ourselves and we cry out to God that Jesus himself is at the right hand of his Father mediating in real time on behalf of us. Because of Jesus' death, we no longer have to be slaves to sin. We have inherited freedom. We've inherited it. So if we put this all together, if we put it all together, in Christ, we have forgiveness, which covers our past. Listen, you don't have to be bound by your past. You don't have to be bound by your past. That decision is done. And if you claim to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then it is literally redeemed. You've been freed from that. You've been freed from it. And I know right now there's like a battle in some of your minds. Yeah, but you don't understand. Like, you don't understand what I did. You don't, you don't understand. God understands. He understands and he paid the price. It's done. If you're living with it, if you're carrying it out of this room this morning, it's because you're making another poor choice because here's the deal. God is a God of second chances. You get only one life on this earth, but he continues to give you a second chance to serve him. He continues to provide you freedom. Not that we cheapen that grace, but instead we live aware of it and it compels us. God, would you forgive me? Because I know the price that you paid. And so would you redeem me so that I can experience the freedom that you promise? You've been freed from your past. And he mediates our present. We're putting it all together. Jesus has forgiven us. He has redeemed our past. He mediates our present. Meaning in the midst of the brokenness, God is present. And... We have an inheritance in the future. It's past, present, and future in the text. It's what the author is saying is, listen, don't be so consumed by what it is that you're trying to, to work out and figure out. Jesus has, has paid the price for your past, so walk in freedom. And in the midst of the moments of now, be aware that he's mediating on your behalf. And as a result, you'll inherit eternal life in the future. Sin leads to death, but Jesus says he makes all things new. He makes all things new. He's the God of second chances. Sin destroys, but God is the creator. He's creating. And in our brokenness, we destroy. And in his grace, he creates. He redeems. Even the brokenness. The pain can be a story of redemption. The hurt can be something that becomes glorified. And so we hear stories all around us. We're all stories of redemption. God's writing a narrative in every one of our lives. We saw Elisa's story this morning. A story of redemption woven into her life to say, listen, even at a young age, I'm realizing that my situations and circumstances don't have to define who I am. There's a God that extends grace and my hope is rooted in him. And we have to remind our hearts daily, God, remind me again that you're my everything. 
that you're the Lord of my life, that I don't have to settle with the reality that's been dealt with me and even in the brokenness that you're redeeming it. God is the creator and he invites us to create. Not destroy, but to create. Verse 28, the last verse of this section says, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He doesn't have to deal with sin because it's dealt with. It's done. Jesus paid the price. Sin's penalty is removed from us. The only question is, will you serve him? Will you serve him? And be free will you choose to be enslaved by sin? Because that really is the choice. Day in and day out. It's an initial decision to surrender, to cross that line of faith, but it's a daily decision to serve. That you wake up every morning, every morning when my feet hit the floor, I think, God, would you give me the strength and the perspective to see who you are in the midst of every decision I make, that I'd live more for you and less for me. I need to restart my heart every morning and realign my thoughts because left to myself, I am a sinful person. And every single person in this room is. You have to come to grips with the the depravity of your own life before you can start to realize that God has done a work that means you don't have to live victimized by it. One of the ways that we worship him is actually through our creativity. It honors him as we're made in a creator's image. We actually honor God through our creativity, through our willingness to create rather than destroy because sin leads to death. But God is the creator of all things. And so it's interesting, as we talked about this section of scripture as a preaching and teaching team, we said, you know what, what if, what if we made the application a little bit more unique this week, that it's something we could really, um, I guess, think outside the box with. And so I'm, I'm going to share with you in a moment what I'd like to challenge you to apply as you leave this place. We say every week that the text requires something from us, and it does, whether you're a complete skeptic this morning in the room or you're someone that um, is a faithful Christ follower, there's something for us to apply. Otherwise, you just attended church and quite honestly, you probably have better things to do. So this is what I want to ask you this morning. What will I create as a way to serve God this week? What will I create as a way to serve God this week? Listen, I'm not talking like, (laughs) when we first talked about this, I was like, what, like little crafts or something? I don't know. Like, look, it's a Jesus flower. Ding. I just, that's where my mind went. Maybe your mind didn't go there. Congratulations on that. That's where my mind went. The reality is we make decisions all the time in the context of destruction, the sin of our lives. And what would it look like for us to consider the perspective of our lives to say, I want to honor you, God, through creating And so maybe this morning, the idea of creating looks like you just creating space to surrender. 
Maybe this morning, if you're not in relationship with God, your application is to say, I'm going to create space right now to respond to that which Christ has done. And it's as simple as this, just saying, I'm a sinner, but Lord, you paid the price for my sins. Would you come and forgive me and be the Lord of my life? Maybe you're just tired of trying to be the Lord of your own life. If you're like anybody else in this room, you're bad at it. So maybe that's what it looks like. You can pray a prayer in the quietness of your mind. I'm not trying to embarrass you or make you come up or stand up or raise your hand or anything like that. This is just a moment for you to make an initial decision of surrender. We'll talk about the next steps. I'd love to have that conversation if you've crossed that line of faith. And maybe your next step is to be water baptized. But maybe you're in this room this morning you say, I've, I've already crossed that line of salvation. So then what does it look like for you to create? Maybe it looks like creating a song. There's some people that are really gifted at that. There's some people that aren't. So you don't have to share your song, but you can sing it to the Lord. Maybe it's to draw something. Paint, write. Maybe it's to take a picture or a video. Something that connects the reality of who God is in your life to the creativity that he's birthed within you. I think all too often we try to, like, almost crush creativity in Christian circles or something, or at least not allow it to expand. And I think that that in and of itself is sinful. <laughs> You're creative people, and here's the deal. You might say, I have, I have nothing to create. Yes, you do, because we're created in God's image. And so, therefore, we create or we destroy. Maybe creation looks like changing brakes on a widow's car doing an oil change for someone for free. And just say, you know what? I was, I was actually praying this week and you came to mind. I thought I would change your oil. They'd be like, you pray? <laughs> like, eh. Just saying, sometimes we think of create as like crafts. Maybe you're bad at crafts, but it's bigger than that. What does it look like for you to create? I want to challenge you to, to spend time and say, what does it look like for me to apply this this week? For you this morning, maybe you're in a unique place where you can confidently say, listen, I've crossed that line of faith and I am fully engaged in the creativity of what God's woven into my heart. And that's amazing if that's you. But you can't dismiss yourself from the application of the text. And so what is it that you need to create this week? And maybe for you this morning, if you're fully functioning in that, maybe what you need to create is bridges to others for the purpose of mission. Maybe it means creating moments of conversations and spiritual conversations or creating divine appointments where God can use you to speak hope and life because you've been set free. Could you imagine? <clears throat> Could you imagine being literally captive, literally enslaved, being set free, and then turning around to your closest friends and family and being like, I made it. I'm free, I'm free. Hey, hope you get out and walk away. When it's under your authority to speak truth and to help set them free. We've been set free. For those of us that are followers of Christ, and it's within our power to be able to help others realize that they're in bondage. They don't have to settle for a lesser version. 
So I want to challenge you this morning, if you would, just bow your heads. And uh, if you want, you can close your eyes. If you'd like to leave your eyes open, you're free to do that. But as you bow your heads, I just want to encourage you to maybe pray a prayer asking the Lord right now, say, God, would you give me wisdom as to, to what it looks like to apply this? What does it look like to create in a way that honors you? Think outside the box. I think we actually need to have permission sometimes to be innovative, to dream. It's like we just settle and say, no, but, but this is it. This is my reality. It's this little fence. And then it gets removed and we think we're free, but we're still enslaved. We're still captive. So Lord, allow the Lord to, to whisper to you what it might look like for you to innovate and create. Let's respond to the Lord together.